This is a Sunday talk by Matthew Saradsky, entitled Questions and Answers with Matt, recorded March 25th, 2012, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Question one, three. What is the difference, if any, in the quality of awareness of this moment, or in the experience of life in this moment, as between someone who has awakened and someone who has not. It is easy to say the unawakened person may be troubled by thoughts or take their little self too seriously. So assume for the purpose of this question that the unawakened person, the average schmo like me, isn't troubled at the moment, at the moment by thought or emotional turmoil and is instead, instead just resting in the present moment. Is there then a difference in the quality of awareness or the experience of life in the moment between an awakened and an unawakened person? Or has the experience of awakening forever after left such an impression that you don't experience the average moments in life quite the same way? So it's a really good question. Um, see. I think we should start by differentiating our terms a little bit. So... He says, what's the difference, difference, if any, in the quality of awareness of this moment or in the experience of life in this moment? So let's pick one of those. Uh, So the quality of awareness. First of all, what are the qualities of awareness? So can we say awareness has a shape or a color? I'm smiling. He knows where I'm going. <clears throat> Can we say awareness uh, looks like something? It looks like whatever you're looking at. Because whatever you're looking at is arising in awareness. Okay, so awareness itself is what allows qualities. Does that make sense? So... What you can say is that aware, what changes in awareness is not its ultimate quality. And if you wanted to ascribe certain kind of ultimate qualities to awareness, you could do something like what the traditional Hindu uh, teachings have done, which is they say the ultimate reality is being, consciousness, or awareness, and bliss. So awareness itself is identical with being, and with the highest bliss. So that's, that's what the qualities of awareness are, if you wanted to say what, what quality does awareness have. However, you can say, what is the content of awareness? Okay? So awareness, the content of awareness is going to always change. So let's, let's look at the question again. Okay, so what is the difference, if any, in the quality, and in this case I'm going to say in the content of awareness, as between someone who's awakened and someone who has not? And then he's saying, okay, well, let's say, not talking about a suffering, deluded mind state, you know, emotional turmoil or something, but just resting as at the present moment. So, first of all, resting at the present moment is not that easy, because the mind is coming in and making, you know, all these thoughts arising and, and triggering emotions and things like that. So, um, 
Resting for the pre- in the present moment is actually why we practice meditation. So let's say that you are in a state uh, where you're resting in the present moment. <coughs> what is the difference between awakening and not awakening? Well, that's a really uh, that's like the ten million dollar question, right? But what is delusion? So in in the Buddhist tradition, delusion is dukkha. And it means, sometimes it's translated suffering, but it can also just mean unsatisfactoriness. Sort of a sense of unsatisfactoriness that pervades all life. So, when delusion is transcended, that goes away. That sense of unsatisfactoriness. So, even if you're resting the present moment... If you're, see- if you're a seeker, there's still a little... This isn't quite it. So that, that little germ of suffering, that little unsatisfactoriness, that's what you want to examine. That's what you want. In, in your meditation, when you sit in your meditation, where is the suffering? That's actually a question for practice. So this is a really good question because it's starting to get to a subtler level of practice. Where is there still suffering? And then you will start to be able to locate the hidden tendrils of the ego, or whatever you want to call them. The, the conditioning that is keeping you from recognizing your identity of, with all of this. The essence of all of this. Consciousness itself. So does that make sense? Um, on the other hand this last part is the experience of awakening forever after left such an impression that you don't experience the average moments in life quite the same way so the average moments in life can still be uh, you know in one sense it's the same in one sense you know life is you know still very ordinary but the difference is that underlying it, there isn't the sense that this needs to change in order for me to be happy. Whatever it is that's happening, no matter how horrible, it, it, you're not fooled into thinking that that somehow is going to dictate your happiness. And I just want to quote this something that I came across on the internet uh, yesterday. Thich Nhat Hanh was interviewed in some magazine. I posted this on my Facebook profile. Um, and he was saying that the human race might be extinct in a hundred years. And we need to not be, not feel despair with this. And he says the, the way to not feel despair at this is to recognize eternity in each breath. He says there, there's really no life and death. So that level of serenity is what we're, we're talking about here. Okay. So, anybody else have any questions? I mean, we could just go to Joel's, but... Yeah? I was wondering if the mystics think that there is a life plan for all of us. You know, the Taoists believe that. Right. So, you know, depending on which tradition you're, you're, you're talking about... Um, 
have certain different ways of talking about it. In one sense, a life plan falls into, I would say, the category of cosmology. You know, what is your sense of how how the world is put together? So the tradition of you know talking about karma um, in the East. So I would say that mystics are um, not universal in their uh, you know discussion of that subject. So, um, but what I can say is that your what you take to be your life is actually um, your delusion, and so the, the your true life is uh, one without a second. It's the life of the divine. It's the life of consciousness itself. So what we what we experience is the, um, in a sense it's it's the shadows on the wall in Plato's cave analogy, right? And that is you could say that's your karma. That's that's that which you are here to uh, your koan, your life koan. You're here to see that that is no different from the ultimate reality. So that's that 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 shadow itself is also God. It's just God that has been uh, dimmed and shaped to take form in space and time. So when things don't go your way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So usually, okay. So this is my experience. Usually, when things aren't going my way, the the big opportunity there is to find out where I'm stuck. So where's the resistance? So any time there's suffering, it's an opportunity to identify uh, attachments. I thought it'd be helpful to think that there was a plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in one sense, you could say as long as you are uh, a seeker, as long as you are identified with a subjective pull, then there is God and and you know there's a creator because there's this whole universe outside of you. And there is a, in some sense, a destiny. But there's also the experience of free will. So they kind of go, to, they co-arise. Free will and destiny. Neither ultimately exist. Because ultimately there's no time. So there, and there's no entity. So, but they are experienced by us. And, you know, I've had dreams that predicted future events very, very specifically. So, I mean, so that, what's that? But then I also walk through life thinking, you know, with the experience of, you know, making decisions. That's the experience. But you can never know that you've made a decision because you can never see the other decision be made. Right? I mean, you only know what happens. So, and it, it, it's part of the, um, you know, these are big questions, basically big philosophical issues, but they arise because of the mind's tendency to make distinctions and try to say, you know, we divide reality up into things like free will and destiny and self and other and so forth. And, and we're not saying they're bad, they're beautiful, because that's what makes this whole experience so rich. Yeah. 
back a little bit to Jill's question, but it seems as though, and it's kind of a human nature, for lack of a better expression, but it seems as though um, we, as humans, have a tendency to think about things in a linear way. Yeah. So, you know, I'm plugging along, I have my gnosis, I'm enlightened, I keep going up this beautiful linear path into more enlightenment, and... Um, I don't know, and it's kind of like meditation. You know, you have your moments of meditation, you have those aha moments, and then you cycle back into something else. Right, right. And so, um, to not drive myself completely crazy, I, I tend to think about these things sort of in a nonlinear way. So that, you know, it, it kind of back to the light plan thing. So things go on, and you cycle back into something to teach you a new lesson, and you cycle back to something else to teach you a new lesson. And um, I haven't really heard Jules talk about this, and I wish she was here, but. Um, isn't it all nonlinear? Isn't it mm-hmm. isn't it kind of um, a fallacy to think about this progression as being anything linear at all? The mind is going to make it seem linear. It wants to. Well, yeah, I mean, it's what the minds do. It's how, and that's what time is. Time is the mind breaking things up into sequence. We now we know with quantum physics that. The time space continuum can go either direction. Yeah, but it's not. It's, but it's also not not linear. You see, so to say, oh well, it must be circular. And so some people say, oh well, okay, time must then be circular because if it's not linear, but you know. But again, that's just another construct. That's just another. So, and then the idea of attaining gnosis and then continuing on to greater degrees. So the. In enlightenment, there is there are no degrees. So that's one that's one way you can tell a teacher whether or not they they're actually enlightened. Because if they're saying, well, you know, there's all these degrees in enlightenment and so forth, those are just relative teachings for people who are on the path. Because we're talking about something that can't be divided. It's it's the essence of that which can't be divided. That's what you're trying to find out. What is always here? What is real? So, the mind still does its job of creating time and space. See, the, and there can be the experience of attaining insight, ultimate insight, and then, and then conditioning coming back. And, you know, and I've had some of that. But, you know, you know, once once this stabilizes, it's really seeing what is here. There's no there's no degrees in it, and and the mind is still going to do what it does. But you just you just know that's what minds are, and and that and you couldn't operate without sequence. You know, I mean, I my, I live my whole life by my my online scheduling program. You know, I mean. I'm, wouldn't pay the mortgage at all, you know, let alone be late, you know, they'd be paying at all if I don't have a scheduling program. So. Yeah, but I mean, you know, seven o'clock comes after six o'clock, and, you know, and it's good, you know, we want it to be that way. It's, you know, we just watched Labyrinth with the kids, you know, the David Bowie movie, and there's a lot of, like, kind of dream sequence, you know, allegory stuff in there, and you know, if the whole if your whole life was like that, you'd go mad. You know, I mean, that was the, you know, I mean, you wouldn't be able to operate. So. 
Yes. Well, the frustrating thing, I think when Hiromi's asking about things going your way, is that um, I'm a real planner of everything, and I really get frustrated when things interfere with those. But they're not to the point where I go crazy, although I have at times. Uh, <laughs> when they don't go right, I'm trying to you know, get things done. I have like a goal at the end of the day to get so much done, and if I, you know, if I do some days, it's okay. Some days, I'm frustrated. So that's the time when, I don't know if that's what she's talking about, that's about how I read what her question was, is that that's the thing I have to deal with, this frustration, or uh, sometimes, oh my God, if I'll get this done, when am I going to have time to do it? And I, I tend to be a busy person, mm-hmm. maybe too much, but uh, those are the small things that bother me a mm-hmm. lot. You know, not so much big things, it seems like that's a lot easier mm-hmm. to take. Just the day-to-day small irritations yeah, they add up. Frustrations and irritations, and most of it is because not going the way I wanted to. Right. So, the, to me, I think that the, the, the big antidote to that on the path is cultivating mindfulness. And so doing a little, a little sitting practice, a little meditation practice, just taking whatever, you know, 15 minutes out of your day and making that a, a time for just cultivating this ability for the mind to stay present, then carrying that into your day-to-day activities so that when things aren't going your way, you have that space before the reactivity. And then you can see the reactivity start to arise, and you can, you have, there, there's just a moment there where letting go can happen. And it's, in a sense, it's not you doing anything, it's you just being that much more present, the mind starting to develop this awareness of the present moment, and a, and a relaxation into the present moment. So, once, and that becomes more and more your natural place to be. And then that reactivity, less and less, it's still some things are, you know, going to get past that. You know, your mindful, your level of mindfulness is only good up to this level, and then, oh boy, that went over my, you know. But gradually you raise your bar. And that's, that's part of what we're doing, cultivating this, you know, this still resting in the present moment, like Joel was talking about. And then that gives you more and more opportunities for insight. Even before the big whammy. <clears throat> yes? Yeah. Um, I like this idea you said of letting go, and I kind of think of it probably in a little different way, but because um, um, I went through an experience just yesterday where something happened, and so the, the anxiety started, and I was able to see that, oh, there it is, there's that anxiety, and have that just a little bit of separation, and uh, lots of other thought. I didn't go off. I started to travel off on the story and caught that. And then um, had the thought about that that's, that's so hard to say. That, that's not me, and it's not going to stick anyway. So, um, And then when I, but when I get, can't get to that point or it doesn't work that way, I uh, really appreciate years ago from a 12-step group called Alamon, that, you know, a lot of people probably know the concept of day at a time, but I've gone to an hour at a time or a minute at a time, which is kind of like you're saying, be here now. Mm. It's like, be here now, mm. you know. And if I just go to that, here I am, I'm here, the rest of it is, you know, and then, then I'm here and then it's okay. Mm. So um, any kind of letting go, getting that uh, distance, I guess, is always helpful. Was there a question in there? 
Yeah, it was a good comment. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's great. You know, any and any you know different. There's different tools. You know, yeah. and so like the twelve step program has a bunch of great tools. You know, I understand. Um, and then also uh, physical practices. Yeah. Helping to get the tension out of the body because a lot of times we hold our tension in our body. So for me, that has been real. That's been really important. A lot of people do yoga and stuff like that. Yeah, that's so. yeah. Or even just exercise, any exercise. You know, just get the body to relax a little bit, and then wow, boy, it's like for my kids. You know, the, meditation isn't really an option. You know, they're five and seven. <laughs> but if you can run, boy, they're you know a lot more relaxed. You know. <laughs> So I guess that one of the questions would be, you know, if, if you have some awareness of this happening with the anxiety or whatever, you're not here. Anything that can, you know, and, uh, will bring you back to here mm. is helpful, right? Yeah. There's the question, right? At the end there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you already know it. Already know. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. What was your name again? I'm Chris. Chris. I have a question about interrupting thoughts. Okay. That was the topic of a uh, presentation here recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering about the use of mantra. Is that just basically replacing one thought with another? Yes, it's replacing one thought with another. But meditation is replacing one thought for another, too. It's, you know, the thoughts to, to remind you to stay in the breath or whatever. So it's... Um, Uh, the idea being that you want to use the mind to, well first you want to ultimately speaking we're on the spiritual path we're using the mind to uproot the mind to uproot the mind's tendency to create d- distinctions to, 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 to deceive us um, but the primary thing that we do first with that is to train attention so in Joel's four uh Principles of the path are attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And so attention is this um, power of consciousness to have objects, to, to pay attention to objects. And we all have it, but it, it gets usurped by the, um, in the play of mind, by the, the rising of all of these thoughts and experiences and the world and everything. And so we get distracted. You know, you go online to check your email, and an hour later, you know, you know how many Facebook profiles you looked at, right? So, so, so we want to cultivate attention. And so the, there's different ways of doing that. And the mantra is one way, using a word. And the other thing about the mantra, though, is that it can have a devotional aspect that often you don't find in meditation. So it can have a meaning inherent in it, like love or the name of some deity if you're in a religious tradition. And that can carry some um, experiential content. Like, let's say you've had an a, uh, experience of an opening to the divine that you attributed to the Virgin Mary or something. And so you say your Hail Marys, and it takes you back into that relationship. And that's part of that devotional type of practice, that you get gradually closer and closer and closer to your divine, divine loved one, you know, the, the beloved in the Sufi tradition. And then ultimately, though, that distinction has to, that distinction will vanish, and you will realize, oh, the beloved and I are one. 
And that's that's awakening through devotional practice. So it's tool for a part of the journey. Right. Yeah. As is meditation. And the goal isn't to sit in meditation and you know, the goal is to be free. Sources of suffering that I can blame, you know, in, in being in my skin is uh, question of right versus wrong, and that duality. In that versus right, wrong actions, you know, moral things like don't kill, don't commit adultery, you know, that kind of thing. But is but just being right or being wrong is an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, uh, I was watching a, one of these TED interviews. Online, and the person was talking about uh, you know being right and wrong. I said, "What does it What does it feel?" And I asked the audience, "What does it feel like to be wrong?" You know, and the hands go up. Says, "Well, it's embarrassing, or it's disappointing." You know, there's all kinds of negative uh, responses. And well, I, I submit to you that that's not that's not what it feels like to be wrong. It, it's what it feels like to realize that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference, you know, that the realization is, is, uh, is where the emotion comes from. And so I had to think about that, because I thought about all the times that I uh, sort of schemed and planned and uh, plotted, you know, things to go a certain way, and they didn't go a certain way. Uh, so does that mean I was wrong? Initially, you know, the, the wrongness is like is the it's my interpretation of the result. Or something. So that's that's one of the clearest uh, clues to me that, that Maya is working. So are you are you that, that what's working? Maya is is operating. Okay. I don't know. Either. I see. Okay. I see. Well, so you're not speaking about morally. Right or wrong? In this not, case. No, not necessarily. Okay. It's yeah. one so, the, so let's just make that distinction first, because that if we're talking about moral right versus moral wrong. That opens a different can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I would say this: the uh, attachment to being right is absolutely Maya. That's delusion. The um, desire to be right, to understand could be actually, depending on your motivation, a very selfless thing. I, you know, want to, you know, say what I'm saying as rightfully as I can to help you all be happy, right? You know, and but if I said something wrong, and I go and I listen to this later, or I play for Joel, and he says, oh, Matt, you should have said it that way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to suffer. I'm going to go. Oh yeah, yeah, that didn't make sense. That was, that wasn't very right. I'll try to do it better next time. But if I was, oh no, wait a minute. I'm, you know, I always say it the right way. You know, well then that would be a different story, right? Is that in line with what you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't so much of a question. It's just yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, no, but I think that. A lot of people want that we, you know, and I've, I've been guilty of this in the past. You know, been very attached to being right. My opinions must be right, you know. And if they're, and if somebody uh, challenges my opinions, then, you know, oh boy, you know. <laughs> but isn't there a way? I mean, like the 
way Joel says it is constructive, but some people can have a real tone that they're saying, you're really an ass because you're wrong. You know, they can kind of tone your picks a lot. And, yeah. uh, He's a pulse punches with me, though. But even if somebody did come along and try to put me down, still. Well, I mean, it depends if they're right or not. It depends if they're right or not. I mean, I don't know how I'd answer that. But the point is that there wouldn't have to be suffering if there was no attachment to being right. Even if the person is being mean. In fact, if they're being mean, you know, you feel compassion for them, gosh, they must be unhappy. Okay. Should we go back to one of Joel's questions here? <laughs> no, these are good, though. They're juicy. Let's see. Um, okay. If on the spiritual path I should give up the efforts to intellectually know stuff, quotations, or understand things using the mind, then is there something to realize or know to which to look forward upon spiritual awakening? I sense the paradox of letting go. So, okay, I let go. But do you learn or realize something upon awakening, such as a lack of separateness, a oneness, capital O, upon awakening? Question mark. So, awakening doesn't give you a new content to know. So, the way that we think of knowing something is the, the way that we cognize content of awareness. So, uh, I believe Dr. Wolf said something like, uh, he recognized, right at the end of before the heavens opened, he recognized that there wasn't, what well, could you, what was the quote? It wasn't the, it wasn't the content, but the context, or something. You remember that one? Yeah, something like, he recognized that realization does not involve any new content yeah, in no, consciousness. Change. Yeah, change in content. Yeah, so it's, realization does not involve the change in content of consciousness. It involves recognition of context. Context. So, and then he coined a new term. So Kant, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, talked about the limits of the perceptive faculty, the senses, and the cognitive faculty, the, the mind, you know, the thought, thought field. And in Buddhism, those are the you know, first six fields. Um, or we, t- we, we train those six fields when we do our choices awareness practice. And he coined a third way of knowing. So those are the first two ways of knowing. There's a third way of knowing he called introception. And you could also call it insight, faculty of insight. And it's related, it's essentially identical with how do you know that you know? So knowingness itself is associated, it is paired with the sense of identity. How do you know that you know? Well, I just know. I, I, I am. I know. So those are, that is our getting close to our source there. Our source. Let's remember, being consciousness blessed are the three uh, Hindu 
descriptions of reality. So being, I am. Consciousness, I know. Bliss, you could say I experience. What's essence of experience? Essence of experience is bliss. Why do we feel that? Because you're deluded. You think you're separated. So, do you learn or realize something upon awakening such as a lack of separateness? So, do you learn that? Not in the sense that we commonly think of as learning. Because learning is, I now have in my memory access to information about something that I previously experienced. It's a different order of knowledge, you could say. It's the knowledge of identity with the absolute. So it's not like anything else that you can you can identify with. You can't. Um, such as a lack of separation or oneness upon awakening. So what you recognize is a lack of separation or oneness. But it's not in these traditional categories of knowledge. Does that... And if, does that make sense to everybody? It's sort of a little bit, Joel likes to kind of throw in a little philosophical side of things here. It's good, but, and because, you know, it's getting to the point, too. It's not, it's not like the stuff the Buddha would say, I don't even know about that. Just meditate. So it's good, but. <laughs> okay, any other questions, or should we finish Joel's questions? Yes, Abdullah. Actually, it's part of Joe's question you answered in the beginning. Yeah. When you mention, uh, I think in the meditation, there is resistance or an examining. Mm-hmm. So now this examination, um, how, what do you mean? Is, wouldn't that put you back in thought? Um... Or inquiry, wouldn't that be like you're going back into a thought mode? Well, in one sense, you can't really leave a thought mode. I mean, you could be in a state where there's no uh, subject or object, and you're in a, you know, in a, yes, you, know, you can be in a period where time stops. But as, once you recognize this sense of um, dukkha, the sense of unsatisfactoriness, you know, already there's going to be a little bit of some some emotion, thought, field stuff. There's something in content there. There's content and awareness. And that is what you want to just... And you don't have to think about it. Just let that be in attention. So the tendency is to not want to see that. So you just be aware of it? Be aware of it, is all. Yeah. yeah. Be aware of it, and then, you know, by examine, I mean... Um, allow the opportunity for insight to happen by letting attention rest on that experience in an open field of uh, awareness as possible. Does that make sense? Okay. From your perspective, what one thing do you see people doing over and over again in their effort at finding spiritual truth? What thing do we do do that causes you to shake your head in compassion, wishing we could see the obvious? (laughs) Um, 
Well, if you had to just say one thing, it would be already in the sense, you know, which is you know something that's talked about a lot in the nominal circles. So he says, from your perspective, what one thing do you see people doing over over again wrong in their effort of finding spiritual truth? Well, it's the effort part. That's the wrong part. But you know, otherwise speaking, you know, it's kind of individual. So it sort of depends on the person, and that's why you know, if it was everybody was exactly the same, you just, you just give everybody exactly the same practice. You know, everybody just needs to go do Zen or whatever, and just sit, and then they'll be happy. And that's not true. I mean, a lot of people are miserable doing that kind of practice, or one teacher doesn't quite work with somebody, and they, you know, then you find a different teacher, or they come from the center, and like those guys are nuts. You know, we're going to go over to the you know, hang out with the Tibetans or go back to the Catholic Church or something. So, you know, you can't just give a cookie-cutter answer to that. Except for the fact that it is the grasping mind that is preventing the seeing of what we are. So it's a good segue into that aspect. The, the mind is always under delusion is identifying with content. And so when you identify with content, then I am this part of my experience, not that. And then, depending on what that is doing, you're either going to be indifferent to it, or you're going to want it because you think it's going to make you happy, or you're going to not want it because you think it's going to cause suffering. And, you know, there's a biological reason for some of these things that, you know, that's how organisms survive is they avoid things that will kill them and go towards things that will feed them and propagate the species and so forth. Uh, so there's a biological component to that. But, you know, as humans, we have the opportunity to transcend biology and to become self-aware, and then we create culture. And then out of culture, we can then possibly have insight into our divine nature, which is beyond these separations. <coughs> our true nature, the eternal nature, which is shining through all, you know, everything. It's essentially what everything is. So the, you know, so you can say the one thing is that delusion people do are doing is grasping. Yes? Are you saying effort is a grasping? What's the difference between effort and grasping? Yeah. Good, good question. Pay attention. Okay. Effort, grasping, and pay attention? Okay. This is a very good question. So, the, the way I like to usually put it is, as long as there's resistance, there has to be effort on the path. As long as there's suffering, there has to be effort on the path. But ultimately, there, the, the movement, the movement to manifest diversity is what is keeping us from recognizing our unity. So whenever we're trying to change what is right here, 
any kind of effort is a, is a movement to change what is right here. And what we want to do is we want to actually see that. And so the resistance that we're looking to uncover in our uh, present moment awareness is actually good. There's three. So the present moment awareness practice allows us to see our resistance. And our resistance and the effort that we're applying are actually mirrors to each other. So, however, if we don't apply effort to pay attention, we will never uncover our resistance. So, at a certain point, you get to this very subtle level where they call the witness, witnessing. Subtle level of witnessing. There's just enough effort to be aware that all content is arising that, you know, inside you. Or, or, at, or, you know, apart from you in some way. And what they say is that enlightenment, awakening, is the collapse of that witness. So that sense of the witness being separate from all of the content collapses. And then you recognize that you aren't anything at all. So therefore you're everything. It's a very out there kind of thing to talk about. But that's what that we always in the center. We always want to talk about ultimate truth. We don't want to just talk about the path. But along the path, this is really important. I mean, for for practice, practice, you need to apply some effort, and it's the effort that actually fuels the uh, uncovering of the resistance. It's it's like you know these fires that work together. Does that answer your question? I didn't say it was wrong. Okay. But what I mean is, what what I I mean is, at the end of the path, effort dissolves in awakening. Along the path, effort is your ally. Does that answer your question? Okay. And does grasping serve any purpose along the path? Grasping for that awakening? Yeah, well, that is the effort. Yeah, that is the effort. Yeah. So, you know, like Joel says, the difference between a worldly path and a spiritual path is a worldly path, it just keeps going around and around. You, you know, you go, you get this, you try to be happy, okay, that lasts for not very long, you get, you get this, but you're always in the world of objects. Spiritual path, you're grasping after awakening, enlightenment, and, and trying to find out who you really are, and the difference being that the spiritual path self-destructs at the end. So that self-destruction is the dropping of all effort. Path has an end. There is an end to suffering. Yeah. One, one, one way that I've heard it put is the path to God has an end, but the path in God is endless. That helps because when you said the path is an end, I believe. <laughs> well, it, yes. I mean, otherwise, there would, you know, otherwise it wouldn't be, it'd be pointless to talk about enlightenment. But enlightenment is the, the end. Enlightenment is the end of the path and the seeker. Man. The enlightenment is the end of the path and the seeker. So the idea of you know the seeker, the path, and and 
the goal, or God, the divine. In the end, the, the seeker and the path are both seen to be the divine. And so actually, it's not just the end. So this is one other quote of Joel's. Enlightenment's retroactive. You were never on a path. There was never a path. Right. There's never an end. <laughs> There's always an end. So, but in a sense, you can say that's true. There's never an end. It's all end. It was always end. But under delusion, that's not your experience. Your experiences of being suffering in time. So you have to start where you are. And you have to start, you know, by paying attention, cultivating mindfulness, step by step, uncovering your resistance. You have to use effort. That's all you have. You think you have effort. See, it's not that effort, and in the end you realize, oh, I don't need to try. That's not what we mean. What we mean is you recognize there's no one there to apply effort. As long as there's that, the sense of effort is a source of, is suffering. That's why we, that's why the little kids, I don't want to pick that stuff up. That's going to take effort. Suffering. You know? They don't want to do it. Why do people make me do these things? <laughs> you know, and then you grow up, why do I make myself do these things? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I started going to the gym last week, you know, and trying to get my metabolism up, lose a little weight, lifting weights and stuff. You know, it's not like the weights aren't heavy. <laughs> but, you know, there's... There's just present moment, you know, here's a body, lifting weights, you know. body kind of likes it, actually, you know. Afterwards, you have sore, you know. So... You just, the thing is, you don't know what effort is. You, you, you think you know what effort is, but you don't know what it is. So. It's amazing how, uh, when you talk about effort, that it's the motivation to start that seems to be the hardest thing. Because mm-hmm. if I finally start something, they're like, oh, I really should like, walk. I've been trying to walk since January, my New Year's resolution. Finally, I think it was March, I started walking. It's not that big a deal, and I made this big deal of it, I'm putting it off, making excuses. Oh, I can't do it today, I can't do this because of this or that. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you just get over that little hump, it's fine. It's, it's like nothing now. I mean, what, so it's, isn't it just that little, the not liking it and convincing yourself, and it seems to be better. There's, there when you start is, the action, it seems to be okay. There's the initial part, and then there's, I also think, the commitment part. So, you know, just the initial stage of starting something, and that can be quite difficult. But then there's the commitment to, to keep coming back to it. You know, so it's the second principle of the path, to keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it. So that, you know, when people quit smoking, I... You know, as acupuncturist, I've had people come help. You know, have me help them quit smoking, and I've noticed that you know, there's the first three days. You know, third day it's really hard to not, not pick up that cigarette, and then about the first three weeks, and then about the first three months. If you make it past three months, most of the really strong stuff is is, gone, is passed through. Really strong cravings, you know. But then you have triggers, you know. 
any time the rest of your life. You have it, some life event can happen. You'd be like, oh, I really need a cigarette, you know, yeah. and, right? And then back, you back right back into the habit, right back into the habit. And I've noticed those kinds of things with my own life. It's really easy to get into those old habits, and so you have to have that commitment to keep doing. And that's really important on the path. Again, I uh, I was speaking from the ultimate perspective, and so you know, in the in in the path, commitment is effort. It takes effort. You're okay. You're already suffering. You're a suffering individual on the path, right? You are. So why not suffer over practice instead of over you know what show am I going to watch next on the you know, or at least suffer over practice a little bit, and then go suffer over something else. Because, because you might have the faith that if you continue to suffer over practice, your suffering will decrease. And that faith might in the beginning be very, very small. But gradually, as you practice a little more, you have more experiences of that showing, showing yourself to be true. Because the more you can be present, the more you can allow those irritations to just arise and pass, the more happiness you'll experience. You'll uncover more and more of what you really are. Just in your ordinary life. I got that, but did you actually answer the difference between commitment... There is no difference. Under the experience of delusion, commitment's going to take effort. Yes, absolutely. But what is the difference between commitment and effort? Effort is just the experience of trying to do something. Commitment is the returning to something that you've uh, t- taken on. Could be the commitment to you know, work out three times a week or something. Make a commitment to yourself, I, my body needs this, so I'm going to do this. Or the commitment to quit smoking you know, every day. I'm not going to go buy another pack of cigarettes. But in this case, in the spiritual context, we're saying commitment to do your practice. Whatever practice you've taken on. And and you say, okay, well, you know, and the practice is ultimately paying attention. So you come back to paying attention. You come back to the present moment. And then then by doing that, you can let go. You detach from whatever arises that your mind tries, starts to grasp onto. You know, you can let go a little bit. But it, yes, it absolutely takes effort. And the, and the more suffering there is, the more resistance there is, the more effort it will take. This, yeah? So if you've got this commitment and effort, or they're the same anyway, and there's lots of people that part of CSS that, that have both of those that have been doing this for a long, long time. And there's only a, a few people that have actually been realized. And what do you think is that key component that allows, you know, people like yourself to be able to kind of get it? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> and if you 
do you find out what you follow? I would say this. Uh, you, you know, and I, I don't know what other people's internal experiences really are like. You know, but I do know that inside, internally, I've suffered a lot. And but really tried to pay attention to it. Really tried to look at it. And not necessarily blame something else for it. But to okay, use this as fuel. Okay, how can I use this suffering to fuel my practice? Meaning look at it. There's a lot of energy there. You know? I mean, there's nothing else you can do. You just you have you have to through experience become convinced that all you can do is to be with it. Well, the second part of this is, well, you know, so out of the, we'll call it the 99%, I just like that term, um, of the people that haven't been realized and they're on the path, is that enough to, um, you know, have a better quality of life? You should talk to the 99%. I think my experience is that people who have been practicing with CSS for a long time are very easy to get along with people, and they seem mostly content. You know, I mean, the, the people, and that's one reason I love this group, is, it's, the, you know, the, the long-timers are great people, and, you know, really sincere practitioners, really compassionate. I think that's a, a sign of a you know, healthy sangha. Well, I, you know, this is just a, a comment. There's no question in here. Okay. Um, so don't look for one. But uh, I'm just wondering, you know, CSS and you and, and Joel, um, the emphasis is always on realization. And, and it, you know, it, it seems like that just being on that path, that's a lot. And it, it, it's almost like, well, you know, you really, it's almost like the, the, the carrot to draw people along also. I mean, there's lots of things in the practices that are real valuable and that people, um, I mean, I get a lot out of it just by doing some of those practices. So, um, it, you know, it, I don't know. I, I guess my, you know, what I'm thinking is just, um, just that focus is always on realization, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not sure that there's not there's enough focus on just the fact that we are getting a lot of just practices. Um, okay, well, I'll comment on your comment. Um, in you know traditional uh, nautical navigation, when they use the stars, they always in the northern hemisphere oriented towards Polaris. And without that, they would not have been able to navigate. They'd be, you know, going, you know, getting the spice in India and taking it to wherever. They wouldn't have been able to actually get from point A to point B, even just trading or whatever. So, if you don't have reality as your guiding light, your guiding star, then the um, the essence of the path is lost. 
So that doesn't necessarily, I mean, it's not a, um, you know, it's not a moral thing, like, oh, you have to keep thinking about realization, but that, I mean, that's one of the things about the center. You know, it's not uh, the Unitarian Church, I think, I guess the Unitarian Church or whatever, but, you know, people go there for community and for solidarity and for all sorts of things. They don't go there to, you know, realize enlightenment. I mean, they might talk about enlightenment there, but it's not really why they're there, you know. That's fine. That's one thing that makes the center different. But the mystics of all the traditions that have founded these religious traditions or been exemplary practitioners in the religious traditions are all talking about this. And that's what keeps the traditions alive. And so one of the things that the center is trying to do is to carry that forward into a new culture, you know, a new worldview, you know, post-Western scientific industrial revolution, you know, post-information technology revolution. And how is it still applicable? And how can we understand that this is, we're actually, we're talking about reality. We're not just talking about some other thing. We're talking about what is this? See, that's the thing, you know, a lot of people get involved and interested in spirituality, but they're still materialistic about it. They think, okay, well, spirituality will help me be happier, you know, while, while I, you know, get my six-figure salary and my Corvette and all that kind of stuff, too. Because, well, you know, I mean, we all got to get ours, right? So, you know, so, <laughs> but that's just not real. That's an illusion. That's Maya. That's just a dream. You know, and the so-called physical material world, also just a dream. So, you know, take, you know, take what you want and leave the rest. I mean, it's up to everybody to decide what's useful for them. And if you get something useful here, you know, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I, I will, but I'm still hungry. Good. If you are still hungry, keep coming back. So we got an endless supply. I was just thinking, I've been involved in 12-step programs uh, from different friends and family, and I see in the 12 steps a guide, it was for, these are usually for addictions, and I see in the 12 steps a manner for everyone to live, and apparently these some of these were taken from the Bible, and I see the precepts of this Organization, even though enlightenment would be wonderful, I think it is something, uh, you know, not to try to grasp, but, you know, to still kind of aim for it without grasping it as possible. But I think the concepts and the precepts, I have, my life has been, I've been here going on 10 years, my life is better because of it. It's been better from previously, the 12 step program helped my life in general to be better and make it. I feel like I'm a better human being. I think I'm more compassionate and understanding because all of these, those in process and these precepts uh, build towards uh, love and compassion. They all talk about love and compassion and easier ways to recognize how how we can find compassion and love as, and and spread it on, you know, and pass it on. So I, I think it's it's very helpful. Whatever happens in the long run, which would be nice to be in life, but. You know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I guess yeah. because you can't force it anyway, like you said, you know, you don't know why you were chosen, you were, though. You know, it's right. a blessing. Um, so I, yeah, I agree. And I think that that's a good example of how your faith 
through experience can grow. You know, and your your um, you know this is this is faith that you, faith is not something that you get from somebody else. You know, this is something that you get from your own experience that gives you the. It's part of that, like magnetizing towards the path. You know, and one of the things that we want to cultivate is the mind that thinks about the truth. We we want we want our mind to not be distracted by by things that are going to cause us suffering, but to return to the truth. And so, how does that happen? Well, that happens through doing the practices, right, you know, practicing the precepts, which are very important. I'm glad you brought those up, and recognizing that the more selfless I am, the more I more I'm doing things with the motivation for others' benefit, and the more I recognize how my own mind is creating distinctions that I'm then grasping onto that are causing suffering, the more happiness I have. I also want to add that it's eliminated, not eliminated completely, but it helped me, especially both those programs, with fear and anxiety. I have less fear and less anxiety than when I ever started any of these. and uh, it's, That's a big relief. I still have some. They're not nearly as strong, and I'm able to deal with them through these precepts. And it helps a whole lot with those were big things in my life. That's great. Right. Yes? Hey, um, I just wanted to ask, um, uh, Tom said something about the word chosen. Do you think that you were chosen? Who would be chosen? Uh, didn't, you have, didn't you use that word chosen? She did, yeah. Um, but I mean, doesn't it just happen? Doesn't it like it just happen? Well, the, the better question is who's chosen? Right, okay. Yeah, because, you know, that's a story. So, I mean, you know, everybody talks about Buddha, you know, as a person, and talks about, you know, Joel as a person. Joel's not a person. I mean, yeah, there's a body, you know, and a history and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and that's what he said. There's only one enlightenment. No. no. There's only one enlightenment. There can't be two enlightenments. Right? So that it, it just is, enlightenment just is. Yeah, enlightenment's what you are. That's what all you, all, what's what you are. It's what everyone is. Right? So this, the, you know, the separate suffering self is the delusion. Right? So the, the separate suffering self being chosen, well, you could say it was chosen, chosen to die before the body. You know? But chosen by whom? You know, I mean, so language doesn't doesn't do justice. It's not really it's not really a valid way of describing it. So a better would be um, grace of God, you know, or something like that. Yes. Amy. Um. I just like what you said about uh, take take what you like and leave the rest. That's that's something that comes up in twelve step groups, and also the danger of um, like 
being involved with the center has inspired me, and I've just gone off in all kinds of directions, looking into other people and other things, too. You know, because Joel always says, and most teachers say, you have to drive your own car. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I might get something here, but I might get something somewhere else. And then to stay off of that wag, that um, thing of, well, if I do it this way, then it'll happen. I mean, sometimes it happens to people out of the blue who do nothing. It's true. I'm like, what's that? Well, <laughs> so I, I'm not asking the question. Oh, well, <laughs> I have just... comments anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta remember. My folks thought I'd be a lawyer when I was a kid. <laughs> they, they had no idea. I had no religious inclination. They had yeah. no idea I'd end up in this role. And it's, I've been having a really good time listening and reading and being in different places where they're all kind of little coalescing, like, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're all the same. And but you, you got to find what you need for yourself. You know, every time I open my mouth here, Joel always says, "Well, you have to find out for yourself." <laughs> well, so this is a couple of comments. So the first is that Joel, for me, gave me that guiding star that then allowed me to, you know, read far and wide in the mystical traditions, and and. Intellectually, you know, and also some stuff Tom wrote too. Intellectually, start to, you know, s- understand. You know, capital U understand. S- you know, so what that what's what's the good of that for people who are more intellectually oriented? The intellect is a big obstacle, and so that kind of study and so forth can be very useful. One, it can be very uh, 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 reverent. And so it can give you that sort of devotion. Oh, wow, this is the truth. You know, another way of saying it. It's so beautiful. And I start to get that reverence, you know, like we're talking about cultivating devotion. And the other thing is it can get the intellect out of the way. You know, the yeah buts. You know, those yeah buts become less and less and less and less. And pretty soon it's just, yeah. (laughs) Right? So that can be very useful. And having a teacher is traditionally considered to be indispensable. For, I think, a reason that it gives you that orientation. You know, in some cases, the teacher is internal. Like Ramana and Joel's main teacher along the path was actually the uh, Athena, the goddess Athena. Um, although, as a teacher, his main teacher was Dr. Wolf. Um, what's the second part of your comment? Taking, just driving your own car. Yeah. You just have to get in there. Yeah. I mean, the commitment. Yeah. Right, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And, and well, the I first precept. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. There's, no, there's no way. Right. Well, it's the responsibility. Yeah. So, you know, our first precept is to take responsibility for our life, not to blame others for our own unhappiness, uh, uh, nor to make excuses for our own mistakes. So, uh, that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, if you don't take responsibility, you, you won't have the opportunity to find freedom. I mean, yes, yes, sir. Yeah, um, I've been coming here for about two months now, I think, about, and it's been just about that, or maybe just about a little bit longer, that I re-entered the path of uh, the path that I'm going on now. I've been on a lot of paths throughout my life, and I came up, uh, whether I was driven to it or forced into it or corralled into it, I decided I had to get back on the path. And uh, so I started 
following a, a and I still do, a particular uh, uh, Yogani, advanced yoga practices, and uh, pretty big following. But um, his basic premise is, is the mantra of openness, the I am his mantra. And uh, anyway, I've quizzed uh, Gene on that. Is wondering how is there a confluence here? With, because if I'm being schooled in that particular mindset, will it be a difficulty continuing on further with this group? Because I, even though I could go to other, there's dozens of them in Eugene that are grouped out there, but they're uh, not particularly founders, founder mentality, where there's a founderism, and this is what the founder understood, so this is what the founder teaches. Right. You know, you have to describe to it, so on and so forth. Right. And so I've always been very resistant to that. And so, but I do want to be with a group of spiritual people that also recognize, and I have over the course of my life recognized that a lot of the truths were there on those who were really spiritual. They said that the exact same thing. I mean, I always always perceived that in the teachings of the Buddha and Jesus and, the, and, and so forth. Right. So that's my question. Whether or not that, that you saw that was going to be somewhere, there's going to be some kind of whatever. Probably not. I, the center always recommends people to pursue whatever, you know, outside studies they want to stop. Because I've gained a lot just by listening to you yeah. and to others. And, and yeah, I mean, and, and the, you know, the only problem would be if, you know, you were, uh, I don't know the teacher you're talking about. It sounds like a very great practice to me, you know, the I am mantra. But, you know, if you were going to some group where they were telling you that, you know, the only way to happiness was to, you know, you know some blow up a bus or something, yeah, we might not, you know, get along so well. Right. But, you know, so, but... <laughs> The types of the way the curriculum works here, as people get deeper into the center, you know, you join the practitioners group, and then you can start, you know, well, working on specific spiritual practices, you know, in a committed, you know, weekly, you know, hour and a half on a on a weeknight kind of thing, and then that gets you eligible for retreats. Um, so the types of practices we do are actually quite flexible. And so, for instance, when we introduce mantra practice, everybody selects their own mantra. You know, it's not like we have some. You know, oh, you know, you've got blue eyes. We're going to give you this mantra. You know, I mean, you just find which works for you. And so, the in my I also have a you know a sort of a Taoist uh, energy cultivation practice that I still do and teach and stuff. And and I keep I brought that and that was seamlessly fit in. You know, no problem. So I mean, a lot of people like people come from the twelve steps and things like that. Cool. So. I was wondering if you'd share with us uh, a little bit about what you have planned uh, for the workshop with Andrea. Ah, okay. So, um, if you don't know, uh, Andrea Pucci is Joel's first awakened student, also his first student. She's the first one that asked him to teach. She asked him uh, when he was still living at Dr. Wolf's uh, ranch when he was writing his autobiography. And she lives in Bishop, California, and has a small sangha there that she uh, ministers to. And she's coming up, and her and I together will be uh, collaborating on a weekend workshop the uh, Easter weekend. So it's Friday evening, Saturday all day, and then Sunday afternoon. So if you have a Sunday service you want to go to, 
or come here, uh, it won't conflict with that. Uh, it will con- it would be a conflict with Sunday afternoon Easter egg hunts. So. Um, so she's going to be talking about uh, some uh, teachings that she's been developing recently about how to identify sort of these subliminal um, statements that we make that are usually self uh, uh, self hatred statements, and I think. Um, it seems, I could be wrong, but it seems to be uh, something that's, for women, I've heard more women tell me that this is a problem for them on the path, is that they have these uh, negative self-identity things. So I think, and I, in her case, she, she feels that that was a big, a big thing that she's had to work with. Um, it's, uh, for me, it's not quite those kinds of things. But, um, and then I'm thinking about how I can Still, actually, you develop what exactly I can do, but I had a dream, and I'll tell you what the dream was. So, the dream told me that I was supposed to talk about to go up, you have to go down, and to go out, you have to go in. So, that's what I'm going to talk about. There's a sign up sheet on the front desk. Oh. Yeah, we don't really have a limit. You know, we can fit like 50 people in here, so I doubt we're going to get that many. So. Um, but yeah, if you want to sign up, schedule's out there, there's a flyer on the wall, and then on the counter there's a sign-up sheet. Okay, so I think we should bring the formal part of the meeting to an end. Um, there's tea in the back, if you'd like to say for the conversation. Uh, if you have any personal questions for me, I'll be here. Uh, thank you for your attention.